Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome. This is Cup of Joe, part of the Project Zion podcast, where we explore restoration history. And I'm your host, Karen Peter. Today, our guests are Bill Russell and Gwendolyn Hawks Blue. Now, Bill Russell is a uh, well-known figure in uh, not just um, the post-Mormon, transitioning Mormon community that attends Sunstone, but also in Community of Christ. He has written widely on religion and politics with special interest in issues of prejudice and discrimination. He served for 41 years at Graceland University, which is the Community of Christ University, as a professor of history, government, and religion. Bill was active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, including being a co-founder of the Independence Missouri Chapter of the Congress on Racial Equality, or CORE. He graduated from Graceland when it was Graceland College, I'm assuming, in 1960, and later received a Master of Divinity degree from St. Paul's School of Theology in Kansas City and a Juris Doctor from the University of Iowa, which I didn't know. So I learned something new already with just our introduction. Bill has served on the Community of Christ Committees on Racism, Peace and Justice, and Human Rights. Gwendolyn Hawks Blue is a member of the Community of Christ Standing High Council and co-chair of the Community of Christ Diversity and Inclusion team. Gwen earned a BA in psychology from the University of Kansas and a master's in guidance and counseling from the University of Missouri, Missouri in Kansas City. Gwen moved from Florida to Kansas City after graduation, and she worked there for over 25 years in the field of social services. And her last 15 years were spent, last 15 years of her working life were spent as an independent contractor teaching business skills seminars across the USA and internationally. Gwen has been a board member of several community organizations, was on the board of trustees for Park University and currently serves as a board member of the Drum Farm Center for Children and as the secretary of the Greater Kansas City Black History Study Group. So with that, Gwen and Bill are our featured uh, presenters, commentators in the Historic Sites Foundation Spring Lecture Series with their presentation, William T. Blue, a lonely spokesman for Black Saints. Welcome to both of you for being here on Project Zion, and thank you for your time this morning. Glad to be here. So we're going to go back and forth with our questions. When we have uh, more than one person we're visiting with, it makes it easier for our recording process. So Bill, I'm going to begin with you because this lecture is based on a paper you wrote about William Taft Blue. So tell us what prompted you to write about his life and ministry. Well, I had an interesting experience that, that connected me with William Blue way back in 1961. Well, back in 60, I guess it'd be. Uh, I became the editor of Stride Magazine and an editor at Herald House, assistant editor of the Herald. So I wrote editorials and did some other things for the Herald as well. But uh, my first week on the job, 
and I was this editor of this youth magazine. And I said to Roger Yarrington, the managing editor, who had been the editor of Stride, I said, how do I get ideas for articles? And he said, well, just go see Carl Mesley. In fact, the guest, I mean, our, our person of interest a week or two ago. And uh, so I made arrangements uh, to see Carl. And we spent probably half a day. I think he went over there in the morning and we, I think we, we worked until noon or so. And he just had idea after idea because like my brother-in-law, Dick Lancaster, says whose office used to be adjoining at Carl's. At the end of almost every day, Carl's mailbox was full of outgoing mail that he was writing to people. And so he knew all, he knew all the professors at the universities who were church members, and he, he knew you know all, all kinds of other professional people in that church. So we spent pretty much the whole morning. Uh, but the one idea he gave me that rang a bell the most, at least led to the article that I was most happy with and, and looking back my four years at Harold at this, as editor stride the article i was happiest to have was his article that we published in the april 1964 issue of stride magazine uh and it's titled a, a a negro pastor looks at brotherhood and i read that and i was so thrilled uh, also though shocked well not shocked but disappointed you know felt, felt sad i guess sad would be the word that he, he had suffered so much discrimination as pastor of a segregated congregation in Pensacola, Florida. And so, and then, you know, so his article came in and it was wonderful. And so I told some of my friends over at the auditorium where we were at the you know, battery block building, editor, editor's offices. So my friends like Dick Lancaster, my brother-in-law and probably his brother, Jim, and probably Cliff Buck and some others, um, Dick Howard wasn't there yet. So it wouldn't have been Dick, but Dick would have been you know, thrilled with the article. Uh, and Roy Muir and Neil Pearson and so forth. And so um, that uh, anyway, so I was so thrilled with the article. And, and then one day uh, the phone rings one afternoon and hello uh, and uh, hello, Brother Russell. Uh, this is uh, Arthur, Arthur Oakman, you know, the English uh, apostle. Because I, I understand that, that you have an article uh coming up in stride that might be highly controversial. <laughs> and I said, I wasn't thinking about church politics or didn't know much about it yet anyway. And I said, oh, Brother Oakman, it's a, yeah, it's a wonderful article. You'll love it when you read it. Um, and, and, and I said, in fact, I said, I could uh, photocopy a copy and send it over to you. And I'm glad he said, uh, oh, uh, apostles probably shouldn't get in there have it in, in the practice of looking at articles before they're published. So he was declining my offer. And a few hours later, I was very happy that he declined my offer, offer because then later in the day, I told Paul uh, uh, Roger Yarrington, who was still our managing editor, he hadn't left yet. Well, he didn't leave for another year and a half. Um, I told him about this call from, from Arthur Oakman. And he said, oh, never never send an article to the presidency or to a member of the 12 before it's published and <laughs> never put them in that role. <laughs> Just publish it if you like it. And then if they don't like it, they can tell us about it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was sure glad I hadn't, I mean, that, that Oakman hadn't said, okay, yeah, go ahead and send me a copy. Um, so anyway, but that's how I got acquainted with William Blue. And then I wrote to him right away. I think I, I suspect I was about the first one to write to of all these names that Carl had given me because that's the article that really sounded interesting. Is it? You know, I grew up. I mean, uh, well, I grew up all over the place. My dad was a pointee, but from the ages of eleven to high school graduation, we were in Flint, Michigan, 
And uh, first time in my life, I went to school with black kids in Northern High School. It was about one third black. And the cross country and track teams are full of black plate runners. And so my best friends from, from Northern High School were my, my teammates on those teams. And so now I'm at Harold House, and now it's we're into we're into the height of the civil rights movement. This is just after the after the uh, famous uh, sit-ins and uh, uh, Montgomery. Well, no, Montgomery had already happened, but but Birmingham and Selma and March on Washington were still ahead of us, and so forth. So any, anyway, I was really really thrilled with his article, and he was very blunt about some of the garbage he had to put up with as the pastor of the black congregation. I guess I'll go ahead and say this now. Gwen might want to be saying it later, but I mean, um, <clears throat> things like uh, when, uh, when whenever they would go to a white congregation, like for a district conference or something, they would have uh, the back corner of the, of the sanctuary roped off or in some way settled there for a place for blacks to sit. So they had to sit in the back corner of the building. One time it was even worse. There was a, uh, a, a 70 coming and speaking at the, at the white congregation in, in Pensacola. And Bill kind of wanted to hear this guy. And uh, so he went to, went to the church. And the pastor or somebody says, oh, hello, Brother Blue. Uh, hey, well, let's set you up at the place back behind the sanctuary. Uh, because we've got... Uh, people that uh, will be coming tonight and, and uh, they might be offended if, if you guys are in the main sanctuary. So he had to sit outside the sanctuary, the, behind the sanctuary to hear this 70 from wherever, from Independence or somewhere speak. And so uh, going in, uh, he, he and his wife and, and, and his sister-in-law took a trip over to uh, oh, Southern, Southern Alabama, uh, I can't think of the name right now, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, uh, took a trip to Alabama for a, uh, a priesthood and wives dinner, and along with some, some famous people coming in. And so they went over there and uh, for this dinner for priesthood. He's an elder and a pastor, you know. And so they, oh, hello, Brother Blue. Uh, uh, we'll fix you up a place to eat. I can't remember if they ate at the same time, but in, in another room uh, or whether they ate completely afterward. But anyway, they couldn't eat with the people. Uh, and here he is again, <laughs> reached a member and pastor. And he's got his wife and his sister-in-law with him. So uh, there are just all kinds of things that he said. He said about a lot of such things in his, uh, in his uh, my favorite one, especially with Gwen here. Gwen was about eight years old and uh, at a reunion. And then, and the word announcement was, okay, we're going to go swimming in town in Cameron uh, tomorrow afternoon, two o'clock or something like that. So at, at the point in time, there's, there's, there's uh, Gwendolyn in her bathing suit ready to get on the bus. And they say, oh, you can't get into the swimming pool. So you probably better not go. And so she was naturally devastated as you know, a little kid anxiously looking forward to the swim uh, with his, with her friends from the church. And, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, darling, John Darling and his wife B, I think is, 
they saw the, the appointees of that area. They were, the, they were northerners, I think. But anyway, they, they came over to, to, to Gwen and gave her some, try, try to comfort her and so forth. Gwen then years later is preaching as a member of the Standing High Council is preaching at, at, at the uh, Senate, at the Rest Haven for, for the church. And she told the story about the, the, this happening and, and, the, and the husband and wife, uh, the darlings, providing comfort for her. And she didn't know that John Darling was sitting in the back of the <laughs> back of the congregation there at Rest Haven. I'd, I'd seen John Darling at Rest Haven when I'd been there visiting my mother, so I know I know he was there. But anyway, just there's just so much uh, about about uh, Bill Bob Blue's life that just seems so ridiculous that any pastor, especially, would have to endure this kind of stuff. But this was you know, in the early '60s in Alabama, and that's the way things were. Well. Pensacola, but it's, it's really southern Alabama. It's in the panhandle there. Um, I think they call it L.A., lower Alabama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's uh, it, it really encouraged me, the fact that, that he managed to stick it out, even though it was a terrible story. You know, how, how, could he, how could he endure this kind of rule? But he did. And then he finally went to Kansas City, and it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you, Bill. For I mean, all of that would have uh, perked any writer, editor, mm-hmm. yeah. magazine, publisher's uh, interest yeah. in the life of the church at that time, mm-hmm. especially living in Independence, which was pretty white. Yeah, Liz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot about racism from the people in Independence. <laughs> Negative thing. So, when you're no, go ahead. Oh, since this is going to be edited, I do need to make a correction. Sure. It would have been uh, my mom and my dad's aunt, Henrietta. My mom oh. didn't have any sisters. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I tried to Hopefully create that. one for her, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> give her give her the the credit for that. Yeah. So Gwen, that's a good example of uh, the wonderful interaction that we're going to have through our conversation because. Um, your contribution to this lecture comes from a different perspective. You're a family member. You're also a person of community engagement from uh, the introduction. We learned that about you. Are there specific reasons, though, uh, that you decided to participate in telling William Blue's story for the historic? Um... Yes, I believe my dad's story is, is one of being a pioneer in this church. Uh, As a Black man born in 1910, he persevered in perilous times and in contrast to an easier road he may have taken in some other faith community. Uh, He mentioned more than once, not a lot, but more than once that he could have been a leader in Black churches, but he chose to remain with this church, which for him was not the easiest road. He saw himself as a bridge builder between ethnicities. And that's one of the reasons I think it's important that his story be told. Another is because he loved this church and um, his actions and commitment to the cause of God's kingdom here on earth touch many lives. And so his contributions do need to be recognized, acknowledged, and perhaps even honored. And I also believe his story can inspire others for any who feel marginalized, even within the context of church. Um, His story of uh, stalwart faith and continued witnessing is an inspiration. 
So you mentioned he was born in 1910. Yes. So when we talk about life in the church, we sometimes separate it from community life. But the reality is in the Deep South, that means Jim Crow. That means the uh, civil rights and all that that uh, meant in that period of time. So perhaps we need to know a little bit more about him and begin to understand uh, his life in the church. So where did he grow up? Um, Tell Mm -hmm. us about his family. Yeah, my Yeah, my dad grew up primarily in Florida, and he uh, was reared by both his mother and his grandparents. Uh, He spent a lot of time with his grandparents. In fact, he says he learned to read more or maybe just read by reading the Bible to his grandmother, who was uh, blind. But um, his dad died about a year after his birth. Now, I didn't find that out until going through some uh, records on ancestry. I knew that he never spoke of a father, so I didn't know what had happened with Mr. Blue. <clears throat> but um, my dad stopped school when he was quite young, probably 10 or 11 or so. And during those times, kids didn't go to school nine months a year anyway. So dad often shared that he probably had about between three and four years of formal education, uh, but he read voraciously. (laughs) So he went to work, though, to support the family. He said he was a pretty sturdy young man and he worked at the sawmill. Uh, I remember him sharing that his teacher was almost in tears when he left because she saw the potential that he had. And and just hated to see him walk away from formal education. Um, Dad worked in a variety of different jobs. Uh, He was a cook at the Navy Yard. Uh, I remember him coming home and making the best roast beef sandwiches, thinly sliced with salt and pepper and mayo. But uh, he, when he was called to the ministry, uh, because he had, he had joined the church quite young. His grandparents, uh, he had great uncles who were ministered in the church. In fact, I am a, I think, fifth or sixth generation of the family in the church. So he had that heritage. And he I remember him talking about them having meetings in the house, house churches. And I would, I'm sure some of that was because of segregation that was there. But also they were <clears throat> very small segment of the church, a a Black family in the church. Uh, He, I don't think was ever a bad guy, but he did smoke, he did drink. (laughs) Uh, And I remember him saying when he was called to the ministry, he actually left a job as a cook in a restaurant because he he didn't want to be in the atmosphere. I don't know if it was a bar or restaurant, but in the atmosphere, he thought it was inappropriate for someone who was in the ministry to be in that kind of environment. But um, he had married my mom prior to being called to the ministry, in fact. Uh, They had been married for at least 15 years because I have a brother who's 13 years my senior and one who was 11 years my senior. But I remember my mom saying that she told my dad if he was going to drink, then she was too. <laughs> she went out and got a beer. My dad said he stopped drinking. 
<laughs> no, uh, my mom had a very definite positive influence on my dad's life. Uh, I remember him saying uh, he almost tore his hair out trying to quit smoking because he quit cold turkey. You know, but but being called altered his belief in what type of life he should live. Um, I can tell you some anecdotes later about some of the things, but but simply stated, his marriage to my mom was a very good step for him. I remember him saying that uh, they had married secretly. They didn't tell anybody they were married. She went back home <laughs> and he was supposedly ill and stayed at her house for a while. <laughs> but he said when they did have the reception, one of her cousins says, I'll give it a year. Uh, I think they had been married some 70 some years before my mom passed away. <laughs> but just to give you some idea of the impact she had. But as far as the church, again, once he became pastor, he pastored the Belmont Street Negro Mission. And uh, we were separated because of segregation laws. He would cut the grass. He would fix the building on Sunday morning. He would go and pick up most of the congregation who my who were my great aunts uh, and bring them to church. My uh, great uncle would come. There would be a few others, but it was dominantly my family. And maybe a, a few neighbors would come in periodically and one young man uh, who later joined the church. And then after service, he'd take them all back home. And then Wednesday night, we'd go back to church and he'd preside. He did that for the 20-some years that the branch existed. <clears throat> I grew up going to the Belmont Street Church. And uh, as Bill has indicated, our involvement with the white branch was extremely limited. There would be a, sometimes someone would come over and preach. And that was not often, but periodically. I believe Wallace B. Smith, the younger Smith, preached his first sermon at our congregation. He was wow. in the Navy at that time. And so there was that kind of touching base with the church. But uh, again, as Bill indicated, we went to the branch very few times. I think in the time that I grew up there until I went off to college, we may have been to the branch three times. Mm. And I remember sitting in the segregated seats. I remember <clears throat> my dad telling about um, an experience when we were there, he was asked to offer a prayer by the newly designated uh, church appointee in the area, Brother Shaleen. And my dad, as my dad tells it, before he had a chance to sit down, someone had called World Headquarters complaining because this Black man was in the pulpit. Mm. So that was the environment we were in. Mm. Um, he moved to the Kansas City area in 1969. And part of that move was because he had had conversations with some leaders here in the Kansas City area who thought 
uh, he could offer ministry that was needed. Now, at that time, both my brothers and I lived here in Kansas City. But I think the, the huge component was the fact that he would get to serve the church in a, a broader way by moving here. And it was after he was here and actually, um, I can't remember the year, but several years after he was here, he was called to the office of then Patriarch. And uh, Brother Dwayne Cooey offered the conf confirming prayer for that ordination. Yeah. Uh, and he participated in conference even prior to our uh, moving here, uh, them moving here. I had remained after having gone to Graceland for two years. But in 1958, I think that was my first conference. They were still working on the building, on the auditorium at that time. <clears throat> but we came up. Um, Two conference each two years, we would get in my dad's car. He was the only driver. We had a big Chevrolet, I believe, because it would be me, my mom, and dad in the front seat, and three of my aunts in the back. Mm. And we would not stop at a hotel because you weren't sure where one would be that would allow Black people to stay. So we would stop by the side of the road and sleep during the night and continue on our journey. Okay. But um, I remember he was uh, ex officio, I think that was a title they used then for pastors. So he was able to, to attend and he chose to speak on various occasions and always focused on brotherhood and moving toward better relations. So, um... 20 years plus as pastor in the Pensacola yes. area. And then the specific move to Kansas City to kind of broaden the picture of ministry in that area, as mm -hmm. I understand. What, I think what that, what was, that was the here. idea that he was giving. Okay. All right. So, Bill, with that in mind, his years as pastor in Pensacola and then his time in Kansas City, when you began to write, what were some of the like personal accomplishments or contributions to the church that you saw that you wanted to highlight in your paper about William Blue? Well, I guess for one thing, he he uh, he, he kind of kept the black RLS folks together in Pensacola as the pastor. It was uh, largely his extended family, but and a few other people. But at least yeah, he he kept them together. So. Uh, the RLDS Church in Pensacola, uh, the RLDS segment in Pensacola, uh, had a leader for quite a while, and uh, that was very important to them and to the church because we didn't have a whole lot of black folks anywhere. I mean, any section of the of the country or the world uh, did we have a you know significant portion of, of black saints. So he kept he kept that together, but then and I understand. Uh, in his, probably in his oral history, he says that uh, it was David Bowerman, the state president, uh, 1968, probably speaking to him at conference, said, "You ought to come. You ought to move. You ought to move to uh, Kansas City. There'd be a really, a really important ministry that you could perform in Kansas City." And so that, of course, I think what Gwen mentioned, all three of the kids were in Kansas City. You know, they'd all gone through college by now and were settling in the Kansas City area. Uh, at least, you know. 
you probably run into this before too. There's a pretty big movement. Follow the grandkids, <laughs> you know. Uh, but you know, there's there's going to be some grandkids emerging here, so let's be around. So I, but I have no idea whether that had any role at all in Bill's thinking or or uh, his wife's thinking about moving to Kansas City. But certainly, as far as his ability to to work with the church uh, was ex- extremely important. Like, uh, I guess, I think this is in Mark Shear's oral history. He says the first, uh, my first week, I mean, I'm sorry, my first month in Kansas City, I had four different preaching engagements. And he, he, was, he was wanted everywhere. So here he goes, as, as Gwen said recently here, uh, there's probably not more than three or four times they were in the, the white church. In, in Pensacola, and that'd be for district president, district uh, conferences and stuff. But uh, uh, here in Kansas City, everybody wants him. <laughs> in fact, I think uh, I think Gwen has mentioned, or maybe it's in the in that in that uh, oral history. Uh, after a while, he wasn't getting invited, you know, every day, every Sunday, uh, and he thought maybe he lost his uh, influence or whatever. And I, I think maybe Gwen had to tell him, well, you know, you don't. <laughs> You know, the, you, you, if, they've been, if a congregation has invited you, there's so many priests here, they're not going to invite you again, even if they like you, probably probably for a year or something, and, and then have you back again. So uh, it was thought by somebody, and I think it was Gwen, that he, un, unfairly to himself, kind of thought that, well, he kind of, he, he wasn't asked so much. But anyway, I think another really important thing, two couple other important things, I think he had a profound influence on the black and the black saints in Michigan, maybe especially Detroit, because there was Detroit and and uh, in Battle Creek we had a congregation, but with uh, a reasonably uh, integrated congregation, uh, it was probably still a majority white. But I recall uh, Larry Larry Poole and I, a future appointee, he and I and a friend were uh, working, were painting utility towers across the state of Michigan during summers, uh, during our college years. Uh, so Wednesday night, uh, we decided to go to, to go to prayer meeting at, at Battle Creek. And uh, the, the man in charge was, was a black man. And I thought, well, this is really cool. I mean, he's, he must be fairly important in the congregation to be presiding at prayer meetings and so forth. And, and I kind of knew that there were, there, there were, I guess there are a few other blacks at the congregation. So anyway, Brother Blue, uh, I believe made occasional trips to Michigan. I think I think there's some references in the and Mark's Mark's oral history is very valuable for for uh, his life. And Gwen was there at that oral history, and she occasionally offers some things, that, additional things about her dad. Uh, and so, but then I think maybe maybe really valuable was he, he made a trip to Hawaii. I'm sorry, Haiti. Start over. He made a trip to Haiti, <laughs> and. Uh, I think they estimate that he gave 50 patriarchal blessings mm-hmm. in the time he spent in Haiti. In Haiti. And so uh, that was probably pretty important for the Haiti saints. And I would so, think so. So I think, and, and, and just, just having lived in Kansas City, well, I lived in Independence for six years uh, and you know, having a lot of contact with Independence since then. I would imagine that the places that he preached was very important because he was a very good preacher. One time at uh, Peace Colloquy, he was had that a worship service, and he read the scripture from I, I think it was from Isaiah. And I and I, I kid you, kid you not, I mean, it just seemed to me like it was the voice of Isaiah 
to the Saints <laughs> in Kansas City. Uh, and uh, it was really, really moving. It was just, a, just his voice, hearing him read scripture. And so uh, I think uh, wherever he went, uh, I, I think probably only the most hardened bigots would not be moved by, by his ministry. And so I think, uh, you know, he, he sort of abandoned his congregation in Pensacola, but uh, it was just a little, a little tiny congregation. Anyway, coming to Kansas City, I think was very valuable for the church in that area where an awful lot of the saints are, are living. So I don't know, it'd be nice if somebody had kept a record of all the places he preached and see how many, how many churches in the Kansas City area uh, he spoke at, and it would be quite a figure. And how many different churches he spoke at would be quite a figure, I think. So the experience in Kansas City was very different than the experience in Florida, having been yeah. assigned to the Deep South. I, yeah. I think I get some of that. Oh, yeah. um, what that's like just because of the the culture currently still mm -hmm. in the South. Mm -hmm. And Bill, when you wrote about when you wrote about his ministry um, in the South, and you both have shared some of the challenges, is there anything um, specific that stood out to you as a challenge that that most people in the life of the church would not assume to be challenging? So yeah. most people in the USA life of the church are, are white middle-class Americans. So yeah. what does that say about the challenges that the blue family faced in the South? I, I think maybe I, I, I was feeling that uh, white folks like us probably would not have endured uh, all that, all that uh, the family and, and, and especially Bill endured because uh we too easily can just say, well, okay, I think I'll just go join the Quakers or the United Church of Christ seems to be a fairly good attraction. That's where my sister's at. Uh, my brother, my gay brother, was gay in the church way too early. Uh, he really didn't have a home in the church. He went to every non-fundamentalist non, non, uh, non Protestant church that he knew of. Uh, but none of them finally worked out until he finally just became a Unitarian. And that was a wonderful experience for my brother, David. When he died, uh, you know, we uh, went out there for the funeral at the Unitarian Church. And, uh, and uh, we also have a copy of a sermon he gave at the Unitarian Church. It was about being gay and in the church and so forth. Uh, so anyway, I just think I, I just I was really impressed that Bill Blue kept the faith and remained so long. In, in Pensacola, and of course, it was, a, it was a much better experience up north. However, he was frustrated by some things up, up north, one of which was the selling of the church that most Blacks went to in Kansas City. Was it Malvern Hill or something? I got I, mean, I don't have it quite right. Glenn can no doubt correct me, but uh, uh, it's a church that I preached at once, and I, I, was, I was thrilled to go there, and there's Bill Blue, and there's young, there Bill's, there's young Bill, Bill Blue. Bill Senior and Junior, and uh, in, in a reasonable, I, I, I would say the congregation was probably still two thirds white, uh, but there were several blacks there, including two members of the family. So I, I just and then and, and then uh, and then Gwendolyn, hanging hanging on, <laughs> continuing in there, you know. That's uh, just uh, I don't know whether Bill Junior. Continued or not, but he was still active in 1971 when I was preaching at uh, that church, which the Lou family only very recently had uh, 
had moved into. Um, so just uh, the perseverance, I think that's the name of a book just published by S Senator Elizabeth Warren. I think that per perseverance really uh, is what sticks out in my mind is how could he persevere like he did? Well, that must be a family trait because I think Gwen's life is a whole podcast um, yeah. on its own that we'll we'll That's look right. at when That's we right. do our women of influence on our oh, cup well, of joe. Definitely. Definitely. So Gwen, what do you say about these challenges? Um, what was it about your father that strengthened him, that guided him, navigated him through life in a segregated church and then life uh, in the in the greater Kansas City area? Yeah, my first comment has more to do about what I observed rather than what he said, and that was the limitation of his voice. I mean, he had been called to preach. He had been called as a minister, and through the actions of the church, uh, whether that was totally due to um, the laws of the land in Florida is extremely questionable, uh, but he, uh, his voice was limited. He only could speak to this group of people, you know, my, my ethnicity. I know that he had firsthand knowledge of what prejudice and bigotry can do to distort thinking. But in spite of that, he continued to share what he believed was God's call to creation. And I truly believe what strengthened him was his faith in God. He believed that he had a role to play. And because of his family's heritage in the church, uh, he had witnessed their ability to hang in there, uh, their ability to minister, even with all these shackles attached. And that gave him inspiration and courage. He would tell us stories about, you know, reading to his grandma. Uh, I heard firsthand the story of how our family became a part of the church when his great, great, I think it was his great, great <laughs> grandma's, some greats back there, had observed an administration to the sick for the young boy of a family she had been enslaved by or been released from slavery. I mean, it was like shortly after the emancipation. So I imagine they were still, you know, that entanglement was very present. But based on her experience, she wanted to become a part of this church, uh, having observed that administration and the healing of this young man. And although her husband uh, was hesitant, didn't want her to join this white man's church, uh, later, he had an experience and all of those experiences that they believe came through the influence of the Holy Spirit assured them that this was a path they could follow. And that gave him a background um, of war, of hope to dip into uh, that allowed him to uh, to persevere. and. 
my dad believed that this church had or has a unique calling. Now, I used to go with him when he would do slide presentations <laughs> of the Go Ye and Teach. And, mm -hmm. and he believed in those, which, uh, you know, the one true church ideology. Oh, yeah. I think uh, I'm pretty sure he evolved from that to a broader perspective. However, he continued to have the belief that there is a unique role for now Community of Christ uh, and that he wanted to be a part of that. Uh, he saw the church as bringing healing to the world, you know, and he very much wanted to have a role in that. So I believe all of those things helped uh, him persevere. Helped him navigate what was the life in the church at that time. Yeah. It sounds like the depth of um, the faith, not just his faith, but the faith of his family stayed mm -hmm. with him and has stayed as, as part of his gift. Yes. So I want to ask both of you, what do you think are some of his lasting contributions to the church that we can still recognize or that precipitated some of the ch changes we've made to our community life together? So, uh, Gwen, I'll start with you with that. Okay. What do you see um, in the life of the church that you would say are partly um, based on your father's contributions? I think he witnessed the fact that we each must bear the cross. He, would, he was very poetic <laughs> in his ministry. He would read poems or he'd quote, you know, songs. And there was one that said, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the lamb? And shall I, no, is that the right one? Yeah. And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Um, must Jesus bear the cross alone? Mm -hmm. That was his, uh, one of his messages, that it is not an easy ride. And he would often speak about uh, some concern that we continue to focus on the joy and never talk about the challenge. And he was about letting people know that we have burdens we must bear if we continue to follow Christ. Uh, so I think uh, just awareness of that and acknowledgement and embracing that as a part of our discipleship uh, is something he would want to continue the fact that one person can make a difference. He knew his humble beginnings. He knew that he did not have formal education, but he knew that God had blessed him with abilities and he used those to the utmost. He read everything he could put his hands on. And I observed once um, a gathering, I think it was a leadership gathering where he and Wayne Ham were in like dialogue. And my dad was his match. I mean, there, there was nothing lacking in his ability to share in that dialogue insightful understandings of gospel and Christ and faith. I think one of his contributions is the ability to love God's creation. 
in spite of ill treatment, harshness, uh, injustice, he believed that people could love each other. And that was his testimony throughout life that we can experience brotherhood and sisterhood. He never stepped back from talking about injustice, but he was not embittered. Uh, Dad would say, you know, I never stay angry longer than five minutes. Nice to kind of blow that off. But you know, as I think back on his life, he was not an embittered man. And during the time that he lived and the things that he had to endure, for many, that would be cause enough to say, forget it, you know, but he didn't. And uh, I think he really, he really did have that ability to look beyond, to talk about change and stopping injustice, but not to become a hater. Which I'm sure blessed his ministry as a patriarch, what we would now call an evangelist, a minister of blessing. Yes, absolutely. So, Bill, what would you say to that? Um, Some of William Blue's lasting contributions that we can recognize in the church today? Well, uh, I think virtually every time he went into a congregation to preach, again, I'd have no firsthand evidence of this, but this is my speculation. But every time he went into a congregation to preach, uh, he would really impress the people. You know, his, his voice for not for no other reason, but I mean, his like you say, like like Gwen said, he read everything he get his hands on. He, uh, although not formally educated, he really became well educated in an informal sense. Wayne Ham was probably the most widely educated member of the church. He's got degrees out the years. I mean, you know, I'm just amazed when I hear somebody introduce him and just go through all the all the degrees he's got and so he would there he was a man with a third or fourth grade education having a dialogue or whatever with a, a man who's just extremely well educated uh and he you know he, he holds his own with Wayne Ham. but anyway my my see I I look at I, I look at the history of the church and that's my field you know the history of religion in, in America is my major f- field at the University of Iowa and uh, the church made radical change. One thing about uh, the change we made in, 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 in on race, that didn't come from W. Wallace Smith. That didn't come from the first presidency. That came from the men and women in the, in the pews and then on the, in the streets and so forth. Uh, because uh, W. Wallace Smith was not friendly to the civil rights movement, uh, not at all. And in fact, uh, he, he, he was basically a segregationist. And that's not very well known. He thought Martin Luther King was a communist. But so anyway, I think by the end of the 60s, uh, this 1960 World, 68 World Conference might be a key time. King died, was killed during, this, during the conference. We, we passed a resolution that was prepared before conference. And we also passed a special resolution during conference relating to King's death. But anyway, my point is when any, whenever Bill Blue or any other black minister went into a predominantly white congregation, I, I know Bill Blue would have made a good impression. And people who were, you know, didn't think there's any need for us to change on, on race, you know, probably, 
they, they probably had a valuable effect of whatever racist things they might have said in the past were pretty well put, put aside and became welcoming. So, I, you know, again, I can't prove anything because I don't, can't document this stuff. But just knowing the man and the kinds of influence he had and listening to that Isaiah himself speaking to the to the, to the congregation at a peace conference, uh, you know, I, I just think he must have had a very valuable effect because I think by the end of the 60s, which is just the very beginning of Bill Blue's ministry in Kansas City, uh, we, 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 the church has become fairly pro-civil rights. I can't say anything more than fairly, so fairly, fairly, but I think that's true. And, and Bill Blue's location in Kansas City was very valuable. Now, sometimes he was used as a token. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I had a, I, the, the, the Christian Century was going to use my, I was going to submit to them my report on the 1960, 1970 World Conference, which turned out to be, you know, really not a peace conference uh, where, where the two sides uh, really battled at that, that conference. And uh, so anyway, um, the uh, Roy Muir, director of PR at Graceland, an old friend of mine, uh, I was going to ride down with him to the First Presidency's typical um, dinner for the media before the conference. And so they invite all the media in the Kansas City area to come in and see like most, see like quite a few came. Uh, but uh, Roy is on the phone with uh, the director of PR for the church. He calls Roy and he says, now, uh, uh, Hawks, uh, the future, future uh, pointee in 70, Richard Hawks, Richard. is he coming down with you, Roy? So Roy said, well, no, no, uh, Mr. Hawks is not coming. And anyway, the uh, director of PR for the church was hoping that Richard Hawks would be coming because that would add another, another colored face, another more... Uh, a man of color <laughs> to our country. But I got there and there was Bill Blue sitting there. To, he was there to give the invocation on the food or whatever. And I thought, you know, I always love to see Bill Blue, but I thought uh, he's a token, you know, he's the black man that they trot out. So the Kansas City press will think that uh, we're a pretty open church. And they, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the director of PR was hoping that Richard Hawks would be coming too. But anyway, you know, there's times he was just seen as a token, and that's very unfortunate. But I guess the point I want to make is that the on 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 women and on gays, the church only moved as fast as the first presidency wanted them to move. But on segregation, it was the man, the man, the men and the women on the street. Yeah, I went through the heralds and and stride and, and university bulletins and had like 50 footnotes of articles in those publications by the saints during the fifties and sixties. And there was no contribution from W. Wallace Smith. In fact, his editorial in 1962 was basically a segregationist editorial. You go back and read it sometime and say, what? This, that's really an argument for segregation. Um, and so anyway, again, I can only speculate, but I think Bill Blue had a very valuable influence on the late 60s and early in the 70s when when his presence his ministry was very valuable for the church as it tried to make this trans transition from racism to 
basically a relatively open church. So I'm, I appreciate you sharing that from kind of a historical perspective. Um, it gives us pause to think we sometimes want to remember all church leaders of the past in the best light possible. Yeah. It helps yeah. us to remember that we all struggle at different times yeah. um, with change. So Gwen, um, what do you think that your father would say about the role of people of color in the church today? I think he would encourage us to remain with the church uh, and to share our thoughts, to be bridges, and to help others, primarily non-Blacks, understand the impact of their words and their actions on us. We are as much a part of this church as anyone else. <laughs> but I think we have not always, well, I know we've not always been invited to the table as equal participants in this, uh, in this faith movement. Uh, he chose not to walk away. And I think he would encourage us to not walk away because we bring to the church an opportunity to live out <laughs> your message. I mean, you can live it outside of the church and you can live it inside the church. And by that, I mean the message of all persons of worth, the message that God calls each. And, and for that reason, he would say, don't forsake this movement to be, to be there to bear whatever your cross is, if it comes to that, but to be present. So still that message of perseverance coming from a deep well of faith. So um, this historic sites lecture came out of your writings, Bill, that you, um, that you had participated in bringing to the life of the church. We've talked about the different aspects of William Blue's life, but for you personally, as a as a human being, as an historian, um, as a person of faith, what stood out to you personally from his life? What stood out to me about Bill Blue's life? Yeah. Well, again, just that perseverance, and 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 Gwen was hitting on it just now. Uh, really well, uh, and that is, you know, he he recognized that. Uh, well, maybe a good example here is when he realized he could go be a pretty valuable member of some of the African American churches in Pensacola uh, because you know he's got a lot of ability as a minister, and he probably hum humbly recognized that. But he recognized that he had a ministry in this in this church, and so uh, I, I think. Uh, you know, he, he had a he had a contribution beyond ability to to beyond our ability to assess just an exact amount, exactly how much he affected the church. But his his effect was it was pretty obvious from when he well down there, but as well as when he especially when he got up north, uh, that he had a lot to do. I think with the church uh, changing. And if you hadn't have that, if you didn't have that attitude that Quinn was talking about, you know, let's let's stay with this movement and and make contribution to this movement. Just don't let it die. 
uh, as far as black involvement in the movement. And, and in his oral history, he's very, he's very uh, disappointed that uh, the church sold that congregation that uh, most of the blacks were attending in Kansas City. So he, so he fought for the change, for not, for not changing, but he failed uh, by a fairly close vote, I think, at state conference. So anyway, I just, I just think that uh, he's, he, he made a right choice for him. Uh, to stay with the church and and uh, have more effect, um, have, have more Christian effect on a group of people than he would have had uh, being a prominent member, a prominent lay member of some African American church in Pensacola, Florida, or in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So change from within. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and that's the way the church changed on, on civil rights with with within, because W. Wallace was not a leader. That neither was Israel A. We didn't get a leader in that area to to Wally B. Oh. So again, that's I'm. I, should, I guess I'm I listing listen. future podcasts here, Bill, mm-hmm. as we go yeah. along. So we have yeah. Gwen's life, and we have uh, leadership in the civil rights whole period of yeah. time. Yeah. So, Gwen, what influenced you most of your father's life? What do you think, as a disciple, as a minister, as a person of community action? Um, and what's been most meaningful to your discipleship from your father's life and the influence? I think his uh, staunch commitment uh, to his beliefs, uh, to his belief in the message of Jesus Christ, to his belief in the church having a particular role to play, uh, his unwavering belief that each of us have a role to play. I mean, one of his uh, scriptures has to do with, uh, uh, what was the woman who said, I, I'm here for such a time as this? Queen Esther, was it Esther? Uh, but he saw himself being here for a particular role, and that has influenced my discipleship. Uh, I don't want to sound like some martyr. I mean, people have gone through a lot of things, you know, people of color, people who are not people of color. Uh, but I do believe uh, I am here for this time because of the message that I have. And um, that sometimes can even appear, should I say, burdensome. But when I look back and see what others have experienced and endured, who am I to quibble, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's that kind of situation, but his example of that um, has made a difference. And, and I mentioned her before, I know this is not my mom's story, but I think my mom's um, willingness to, to marry this man who seemed (laughs) didn't quite have it all together in some ways, Mm -hmm. but I think she saw in him too, a particular essence of integrity and, and strong belief in God that, that said, okay, I'm, I'm going to join with this person, you know? So I think those things, uh, he, he did engage with communities. I was growing up, he engaged with PTA, he and my mom did. Um, and even at a time when our membership in this church was looked at a bit askance by other Black 
members of the community, you know, why are you a part of that church, you know, and, and continuing to, to persevere and to reach out to folks um, in the Black community. Uh, children would come, my mom and dad would pick them up. In fact, uh, I had a went to my 50-year high school reunion <laughs> a couple of years ago. Already? Uh, more than a couple. <laughs> yeah, I graduated in 1964, and I was 16 when I did graduate. But, <laughs> but uh, one of the young women there who had been a good buddy of mine uh, during that time talked about how much she loved my parents. Said my dad would come and pick her up when we had places to go, but she didn't have a dad in the home. And 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 it was just natural for my folks to go do that. And I didn't know what a lasting impact that had on her, you know. So those kinds of things have influenced, uh, inspired how I see my walk can be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They do make a lasting impression. So I'm going to ask both of you, but I'm going to start with you, Gwen. What do you think um, your father would want us to remember most about his life and ministry? I think he would want us to remember that he was a bridge builder. Uh, There was a family uh, whose heritage was Booker. Well, Booker was the name of the people who enslaved my ancestors. So they both knew there there was that relationship. And my dad would celebrate, uh, the woman that we knew was Peggy Michael, Uh, but uh, my dad would celebrate the fact that former enslaved people's children and former slaveholders' children's children were at the table together. And they celebrated the fact that we have come, we have joined together, we are doing justice, we are embracing each other. And he saw his uh, paramount role for him was to be that bridge builder between ethnicities, even uh, you know, within his family and beyond. I think he would want to be remembered as someone who used the God-given abilities he had to uh, nurture them and develop them, as I said, through reading or conversations with others so that he could contribute as best he could and, and wanted us all, wanted all people to be able to do that and to choose to do that. So the all are called before we had all are called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Bill, what would you say to that? What do you think William Blue would want remembered most about his life? Um, well, again, that he persevered. I mean, you know, that he he went through great suffering, great uh, discrimination in the church, uh, especially in Florida, but also in Kansas City. And uh, but he saw beyond that that he saw that there were, was a ministry that he could bring. There's People's, he could help people's lives in this particular, by his service in this particular church. And so uh, I think that probably would be a very important thing that he would remember uh, as he as he recalled the positive things about his life and what, what, uh, what would have made, what would have 
that which would have made his life whole uh, or valuable, uh, that, uh, that he would be a black life that does matter. I think. So speaking of uh, Black Lives Matter, that is an excellent segue, Bill. <laughs> so we've all been affected in the past year and a half by the growing incidents that have contributed to the national and international Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. Um, yeah. So what, what, what might we learn from William Blue's life and ministry as we try to respond to the racism in our own communities and to the racism that still exists within the church? Well, we, we ought to be willing to take a, to take a role in that uh, movement uh, to recognize Black lives do matter and that uh, police, when they are dealing with Black uh, people, should treat them the same as they would a white person with the same facts, you know, in the case, um, you know, so many of these uh, killings of black men in the last couple of years or so um, are situations where, as I look at it, I think, you know, if, 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 uh, if George Floyd had been white yeah. uh, with the same, exactly the same characteristics and, you know, a little drugs, a little drugs and, so forth, uh, but he was a valuable high school athlete, you know. Uh, but in, anyway, uh, if a white man just like him, they would have treated him a lot differently. You know, I've been treated nicely by police who didn't know me. I've been treated nicely in, in Lamoni by police who did. <laughs> and, and I've seen times when they benefited me. Um, but so a police anyway, stop in rural Iowa, if you're black, could be a very different experience. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, as a student, um, the Republican uh, county chairperson in the county north of, the, of our county told me one time there was a, there was a carload of, of uh, uh, Grayson students stopped by this particular deputy sheriff. And he said, uh, but they, they had long hair and, you know, they looked like hippies. And, you know, some Grayson students did look like hippies. And, but anyway, uh, they, they were stopped. He, he, this particular deputy sheriff stopped them. And uh, he managed to, uh, well, anyway, he managed to get in the car and uh, find the marijuana or something. And so he's now, now he was able to charge him, but he really didn't have any probable cause to get in the car. But he got in the car because they're they were, they were hippies from Graceland. And so, uh, and, then, and then in court, he lied, in order, the cop lied in order to create popular uh, uh you know, a, a probable cause to go in. So uh, I just think, I think we should all be appreciative of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and realize it doesn't mean you've got to quickly say white lives matter too. You know, what us white folks have been in control of this, of this country forever. And so we don't have to affirm uh, the, the matter that we, that we matter. We do need to affirm that Black Lives Matter because with those cameras that people have now, we're seeing what's probably been going on for years. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a new Jim Crow, uh, and it's really a survival of uh, lynching. This is the new lynching that's going on with George Floyd and all these other people uh, who've been been murdered and usually have gotten away with it. About 90, 90% of the time, they, they get away with it. Uh, George Floyd, it was just a case of such a terrible, such a, extensive photograph of nine minutes or more 
of a guy being tortured. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it took a case like this to actually go to court and win. Uh, we're probably still going to end up losing a lot of cases that we should be winning uh, just because the advantage police have. So police uh, need to be reforming themselves. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a tough ride to get them to do that. So, Gwen, I'll turn to you. What do you think we would learn about your father's from your father's life and ministry as we seek to respond to racism in our communities and to the racism that still exists in the church? I think we will learn that we need to continue to speak up, need to continue to call for justice, even uh, when you may not be accepted when you say those things, even when you may be um, uh, being overlooked as you make that stance, that it is to all of our benefit. It's not just for those who are being marginalized, but for the soul of those who are doing the marginalizing, uh, that everyone benefits when God's justice prevails. And I think that was a, a part of his message. You cannot be all that you can be if you bear hatred or hostility toward another of God's creation. He was speaking to the church, but that article that Bill suggests uh, referenced at the beginning, I, I read it again, and it, it is pretty bold. But just one paragraph, he says, to the youth of the church, especially I would like to say this, the time has come for us to realize the kingdom of God, placing his will and purposes ahead of outmoded customs and traditions and even immoral laws. Let us not be satisfied with things as they are, but continue to grow up into him who is the head of our church, Jesus Christ. And so I think that in a nutshell uh, talks about living up to going beyond what the law would allow or what traditions would manifest that the truer calling is to be on the forefront of justice. Which we um, hear in our inspired council of the past few years about being yes. involved and, and I, in those things. And I think Black Lives Matter, the message of it is about justice. Mm -hmm. So as we bring our conversation to a close, um, any last thoughts or last anecdotes kind of story or anything else that you'd like to share before we end our conversation? Bill, I'll start with you. Well, I think uh, uh, one helpful thing uh, would be if we got Dr. Gwen into writing an article about the whole family, you know, because we know so much about Bill, but Gwen is very important in this whole story. And her, her mother, I mean, I, I've forgotten her mother's name. Uh, Harry. Who? Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E. Oh, Carrie. Okay, yeah, that's right. I can't remember now. But then the story that goes all the way back to the, the former slaveholder, uh, who the story, your family history, I believe, starts with that woman who heard heard the uh, administration of the sick and said, I'd like to join that church. And I think that's where your heritage comes. It'd be nice to have you <laughs> do an article in which you trace that heritage. 
but then also talk a decent amount about yourself and your mother, uh, who's pretty much left out of the story. So that's your assignment. That's your assignment, Gwen. <laughs> I'm always trying to get Gwen to write articles for John Wimmer Journal or something, uh, but I think that would be would be a valuable contribution. Maybe maybe the focus on your yourself is more than anybody else. <laughs> So Gwen, what about you? Last thoughts? Last comments? Um, couple of things. One, uh, attitudinal change. I remember when Dr. King first began being prominent in, in the movement, my dad was not a staunch supporter. Uh, he was the tension between the church being a part of political arena. Mm-hmm. He changed. My dad changed his attitude and he acknowledged that change later which I mm-hmm. thought was very, uh, very good of him to do. He, he acknowledged that I was not always on board, but he began to see the connection and, and, the, and the rationale for uh, Dr. King's leadership. Uh, my dad loved to barbecue. <laughs> uh, he was known for his barbecue and his barbecue sauce. So Kansas uh, City was indeed the place for him. Well, this was in Florida, though. Oh. <laughs> Florida when I was growing up. And uh, my folks would have white church members over. Now, looking back, we never got the reverse of that. We never got invited to their homes. But uh, they would have them come over. We'd have barbecues and people would engage with each other on a social level. So he was a very social being in that sense. And he had a great sense of humor. <laughs> uh, my, my kids talk about enjoying listening to grandpa talk about when he rolled the rails. He hoboed for a little while in his younger yeah. life. And told story, told a story once about uh, jumping off this car, <laughs> this rail car, and being scarred and scratched. And uh, he was running away from home. And uh, he said he went to this house and knocked on the door. And this woman looked at him and said, you get in here. Another black woman. He was all, you know, scratched up and everything. She said she doctored on him and said, now you go home. <laughs> but, uh, Did he? Yes, he did. <laughs> he didn't want to run away after all. Yeah. But uh, he dressed up for uh, a party. They had a, a womanless wedding at one congregation we went to, and he had all the regalia on. <laughs> and he was uh, he was acting the part of, of Flip Wilson. <laughs> the thing. But, but my dad... Uh, as I said, had a very positive, you know, we've been, we've been talking about the serious and commitment and that was all true. And he was a well-rounded human being, hmm. you know, so I wish I wish I'd watched him watch that, make the barbecue better. So yeah. I know how to do it myself. Well, one of the first things I noticed about, uh, about your father was his name. And uh, the thing I noticed firsthand was Taft. Yes. I can check. He was born in the second, Mm-hmm. year of the Taft administration and the and the black vote until, until at least uh, Roosevelt and Kennedy and, and Truman and so forth, the black vote was very Republican. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, he was named after William Howard Taft. Yeah, I would imagine that was consciously yeah. the conscious. Wow. But anyway, you know, lots of people, black and white, you know, 
have a reason to relate to a leading political figure. And so there's a lot of Franklins and there's a lot of uh, John Kennedy you know, and, and so forth. But uh, not too surprised that uh, he was named after William Howard Taft. <laughs> oh, a couple of other things. He, um, I took him to Barnes and Noble when he was in his 90s. Oh, wow. And he warned me not to take him again because I think he walked away with about five books. <laughs> he would have, my mom would ask, well, how many books can you read at one time? But he had this nice big chair and he would have several books, you know, laying around him uh -huh. because he wanted to read. Uh -huh. And I also remember uh, him complaining when he, when he was in his 90s that he didn't know how to use a computer and he needed to know how to use a computer. Yeah, okay. So uh, he had a very open mind to, mm -hmm. to learning and trying new things um, yeah. uh, throughout his life. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you both, um, Gwendolyn Hawksblue and Bill Russell, for joining us today to talk about the life of William Taft Blue. And we've learned uh, a lot about his contributions, not just during his life, but that have continued, whether it's through bridge building, whether it's through perseverance uh, in life and in faith, or whether it's a commitment and discipleship to lifelong learning. I think they are aspects of his character that we can celebrate uh, together. So for our listeners here at Project Zion, we encourage you to go to the historicsitesfoundation.org website where you can view the lecture that Bill and Gwen offer as part of the spring lecture series, as well as the other lectures. This uh, has been Cup of Joe, which is our restoration history thread at Project Zion. I'm the host, Karen Peter, and we thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 